Last week, as we dealt with this passage, the first part, the first couple verses, we saw that unity in the body of Christ has three different aspects. Uh, One is relational, and that for unity to take place, there has to be a mutual submission to one another that expresses itself in in, in forgiveness and grace toward one another. That has to be a component of unity. Uh, One that's often neglected is a doctrinal aspect. You cannot have spiritual unity with people who deny the gospel. Uh, So we can work together with organizations that don't believe in the gospel. We have no problem with that. But there's not spiritual unity. So we realize that. Um, A third aspect of unity is a very practical aspect that we see in this passage. Uh, and so if, if, there's, if there's the doctrinal and then there's the, the relational, but there's not practical outworking, it just kind of falls flat. So there has to be a, a practical aspect where it's, it's spiritually motivated um, and, uh, because of the spiritual bonds, and then there's this um, compelling love that causes us to move out with our hands and feet, much like what what Convoy is doing. There's a hands-on application. So unity in the body of Christ. It's going to be doctrinal. It's going to be relational. It's going to be very practical. And we see that worked out here in Acts 4. Let's all stand as we take a look at it. We've already looked at the first couple verses, but we're going to read the entire section here. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Heavenly Father, as we take a look at a passage like this, it is certainly easy for us to be removed from it, to see it as a nice little story. But there's something that draws us to this, this extravagant generosity. And Lord, I believe that it's something that you want to do through your church, not in a contrived way, not forced, but something that that flows from the heart. Lord, invariably, whenever there's any discussion about possessions, about money, there's an automatic defense that goes up with most of us. I pray that our hearts would just be open to allow your spirit to move freely in us today. Take away those prejudices that get in the way and bring for us a willingness to fall under the authority of your word, the heart of Jesus, and may you expand our hearts towards the least of these. We pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said in agreement. Amen. You may be seated. What we read in Acts 4 
is a practical outworking of unity in the church. A healthy church will have stories that spread throughout its history like this of extravagant generosity. There's stories of sacrifice, stories of extravagant love, stories of of great kindness, stories where the needy in our midst were risen out of their desperation, stories of lives being changed, just like we've heard today from, from Jeff and what Convoy has done. We can't take these stories for granted because not every organization experiences such things, right? Now, this is something I believe that, that is uniquely church-oriented. And we're blessed to see God work in this kind of way through his church. And certainly we recognize that this is not accomplished by our own means, our own strength, but through the grace of God that works in our own life. When we look at this passage, I think our natural tendency is to see it through the eyes of the person who is giving. And certainly there's an aspect of that that is true. Uh, And, you know, then practical applications of why we need to be generous. Nothing, Nothing wrong with that. But let's consider another avenue here. Look at Proverbs 11, verses 24 through 25. It says this. One gives freely, yet grows all the richer. Another withholds what he should give and only suffers want. Whoever brings blessing will be enriched, and one who waters will himself be watered. Certainly there are blessings to be given to the generous. And it's interesting to me that what it says here is that people who should give and don't, they suffer somehow. Isn't that an interesting concept to think about? One of the ways, perhaps, that we can be enriched and blessed when we are kind, when we are are, are giving, is that our hearts are enlarged towards those who are in need. We see them as people. We're not holding them at arm's length. We, we understand their plight. We feel their need. We're not removed from their pain. We enter into it. Just like as Jeff told, going into the back of the car, just weeping for what he was seeing. He could very easily have just quick got on his phone and, uh, I don't want to think about that. But no, moving into the pain. So when our... When our hearts are enlarged, I'd like to suggest that we grow empathetic, we grow kinder. We move into the plight of the poor. And as we remove ourselves from that, and this is part of, I think, what Proverbs was saying, I think we grow critical of those that are in the pain. We grow judgmental. And then we justify our own lack of generosity. This week, the Washington Post had an article titled, Laziness Isn't Why People Are Poor. The subtitle, and iPhones aren't why they lack health care. You might have heard of a congressman this week who 
said that people who are poverty-stricken could get health care if they were just willing to give up their iPhones. The assumption is that people are to be blamed for their plight. Now, certainly there are people who could improve their lot. We all know that. But I wonder what taking such an attitude does to our hearts toward the poor. Could it be that when we shove those who have less, when we shove them away from us, we're the ones who suffer. We are not enriched. The article in the Post said this, to believe that poverty is the result of immorality or irresponsibility helps people believe it can't happen to them. See, we're we're removed from that. But it can happen to them and to me and to you. Poverty in the United States is common, and according to the Census Bureau, over a three-year period, over one-third of all U.S. residents slip below the poverty line at least once for two months or more. Go talk to people who run city missions. You'll find that some of the homeless are ex-lawyers, doctors. Hard to believe. Why? Some tragedy comes, wipes them out. Could be a divorce, could be something, but it wipes them out. They can't get up. You know, the Bible has a lot to say about attitudes that surround those who have plenty. And it's not that we know that money's not evil. We know that having a lot of things is not in and of itself evil unless, of course, we look at everything as just for consumption as opposed to filtering it through leveraging all of that for the kingdom of God. But, but that aside, money is not evil. Having riches is not evil. But there is a certain temptation that comes. And by the way, all of us in this room are considered rich. I don't care how much money you make. All of us are. When you compare it to 90% of the world, right? I mean, that's just, those are just the facts. But when we look at riches as our security, when we're tempted with thinking that we're kind of deserving of this because, you know, we've put ourselves in this position, we grow less cognizant of those in need. We grow a lot more judgmental. And the more that we remove ourselves from people in poverty, the more that our hearts are hardened, the more we judge, and the far less we are to be generous. Jim Braddock was a heavyweight boxer who lived in poverty. He had to resort to begging to get enough money to pay the bills. He wasn't poor because he refused to work. He wasn't poor because he couldn't handle money. Check this out. See, our hearts, I think are transformed as we look through the eyes of those who receive. I'm not saying that it's easy to address the issues of poverty, but we have to start with hearts of compassion and not contempt. I think sometimes we get just too locked into some political persuasion. 
and the compassion is sucked right out of us. We meet needs out of compassion, not obligation. And for the early church, they were known for their empathy and for their compassion. Tertullian, who came on the scene about a hundred years after the story we read about here in Acts, said this, Though we have our treasure chest, it is not made up of purchase money, as of a religion that has its price. On the monthly day, if he likes, each puts in a small donation. They, they took a monthly donation for the poor. But only if it be his pleasure and only if he be able, for there is no compulsion, all is voluntary. These gifts are not spent on feasts and drinking bouts and eating, eating houses, but to support and bury poor people to supply the wants of boys and girls destitute of means and parents and of old persons confined now to the house, such too as have suffered shipwreck. And if there happen to be any in the mines or banished to the islands of, or, or shut up in the prisons for nothing but their fidelity to the cause of God's church, they become the nurslings of their confession. Our, our confession of faith will abide with kindness and compassion. And we see this worked out in Acts. There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. I am astounded by that first statement. There was not a needy person among them. The idea is that everyone in the body of Christ, they had shelter, they had clothes, they had food because the church made sure of it. And if the readily available funds ran out, they were willing to go to the point of selling off assets to help. I don't have a problem with church buildings unless we're not meeting the needs within the church. And then that's a blight upon us as a congregation. When we have people among us who do not have their basic needs met and we're showing off a new facility, shame on us. That ought not to be. All the needs were met. Now, I'm not suggesting that every person in the church sell personal property, but rather that we would be willing to do whatever we need to do to make sure needs are met. That's what I think this passage is calling out for us. And if we expect that this can be done without a season of sacrifice, well, then we're probably mistaken. Reason would tell us that sacrifice at some point is going to have to come. Doesn't mean that we have to make folks feel guilty if they don't give. No. People are forced. No. That's not a part of what was going on here. People just saw the need and they did whatever they could to meet it. That's really not hard to understand. Remember the historical context of what was going on here. It makes this story even more amazing. This is during the, 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 
season of the festivals. There's a Passover going on. You know what that meant? Hundreds of thousands of Jews who did not normally live in Jerusalem descended upon Jerusalem to enjoy the feasts. This city of Jerusalem did not have the infrastructure to support all these extra people to stay so they would go in surrounding areas around the city. But something happened as there were about 120 people in an upper room praying, the Holy Spirit descended and the church was born. And shortly thereafter, thousands of converts were added to this new thing called the body of Christ. Now, think of it. Thousands of people had no church to go home to because the only church that existed in the world at this time was right there in Jerusalem. They didn't want to leave. They wanted to stay to enjoy this thing called the body of Christ. How then in the world could this church there in Jerusalem care for all of these extra people? We know things kind of dominoed because about a decade later, The Apostle Paul was trying to raise money from the churches in Asia Minor to help out in Jerusalem because there was a great famine in the city. So for Luke to say that in this time, in Acts 4, there was not a needy person among them with all of these extra converts, that's astounding. And it goes to the level of sacrifice that the believers were willing to go to to make sure that the needs were met. That is amazing. Our passage says that people were selling their land and or homes, brought the money to the apostles to help meet the need for food and shelter for all these people. In fact, this issue was so overwhelming, the physical needs that were going on. A couple chapters later in Acts 6, the elders have to create a new system. Things have to change with this growth. And what has to change is to meet these physical needs, they had to delegate to other people to take care of the physical needs of the church. That way, the elders would not be delinquent in their duty to do the job of praying and ministering the word in the church. They couldn't do both. So they had to appoint people to take care of the physical needs. Notice what was not taking place. There was no requirement made that people had to hand over their property. But the believers freely chose to make the sacrifice. There was no transfer of ownership or pooling together the property This was more communal sharing, not communal living, where they all lived under, you know, one big household. It was not a rejection of personal property, but a leveraging of personal property to expand the kingdom of God, to meet needs within the kingdom of God. And sometimes God will call us to make significant sacrifice. And our hope is that we as a church body would be ready for that call, that we would be willing to do whatever it is that God is calling us to do for the church family. I remember talking to a pastor in Little Rock 
who was trying to manage the exponential growth of the church that he pastored. Parking and facilities were woefully short. The, the church was growing by the hundreds every season. And so he asked for the congregation to sacrifice. And you know what he said to me? He said, what I asked them, and I felt like it was God asking me to do this, if you have an extra vehicle or you have a boat that you can part with, would you be willing to sell it for the sake of the church? Whoa. Liquidate the property for the expansion. He was not demanding it. He was merely asking the congregation, if they had those things, to pray about it and to see what God would have them to do. He, would, he was asking what most pastors would not dare ask and what most congregants would ordinarily not consider. But you know what God did? He provided all that they needed. It was interesting. He said the biggest problem they had was because parking was so sparse, getting people to park the furthest away from the building that were regular members so that visitors could park near the church. They didn't want to give up their parking spots. Wow. I'll tell you what, I have an easier time giving you my boat, but I do not want to give away my parking spot. That's an extra 30 seconds. I got to walk. (laughs) They saw the need. They did whatever they could to meet that need. It really is an amazing thing. Every person in the church doing whatever they could. You know, I think some of our best moments as a church are when this church has been asked to make sacrifice for the sake of others that are in need. I've seen it time after time. And as a pastor, I can just tell you uh, how joyful it is for me to be able to pastor such a group that responds with such generosity, such extravagance. Whether it's helping with human trafficking in in Kenya, where in a a matter of weeks you raise $20,000 to help build a structure to house kids who were were being killed and having their their, uh, organs used on the black market. And you said, we can do something about that. Within six weeks, you raise $20,000. It's an amazing thing. You know, we're not a real large church. I know people sacrificed. Or when you helped with refugees in Jordan, people coming across from Syria, and you gave significantly to help out with a clinic, a medical clinic there. Or helping with unwed mothers in our community for the Pregnancy Care Center. Or Children in Guatemala, and we have adopted now a, a home, our Bethlehem Care Point, to help in Guatemala. And you've given, and we give monthly now to the tune of three to $4,000 a month to help with the children in Guatemala. And I loved hearing how some of you have already gone to the Fairbanks project in the north part of the city the poorest section of town, life groups who have gone already. And the pastor was just here a couple weeks ago, and yet here you guys are already just going, hey, what can we do to help? 
And it's so cool to see how you have just uh, been so enthusiastic about helping the least of these in our own city. Note here another thing that I think is worth talking about, the level of trust that these believers had in their spiritual leaders. They, they took all this money and it, they laid it at their feet. That kind of trust is earned. I often hear church leaders kind of demanding loyalty, demanding trust, instead of allowing God to use their example. And I think when we do that, when we demand it, we opt for a much cheaper version. And I I get it that there's a mistrust that people have today. There's a mistrust that people have about anything organized in the church. It's almost kind of cool now to question every authority, every institution, you know, because I'm genuine. So anything that has an organization attached to it, you know, you just avoid that at all costs. And the, I, I suppose some of that is related to past experiences we've had with uh, any ministry organization where, where you got burned. But listen, that happened 10, 15, 20 years ago. What's that got to do with now? Kind of like the guy who had his wife cheat on him 20 years ago, and now he says, you know what? I can never trust women. Well, that's just stupid. You're talking about one person. That doesn't mean every woman acts that way, right? So the, the, the point is that we cannot allow our generosity, our kindness to be stolen from us because of our own subjective reasoning. Thus, Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. So now we're given a personal example of a man who sacrificed for the needs within the church. Now, why would Luke insert the name of one individual who gave? Well, I just said one reason. I think he's trying to personalize it, demonstrating that this was actually done by individuals. But secondly, is that he's drawing a contrast. Because in the next chapter, we're given a story of two people who basically tried to con the apostles out of how generous they were. Kind of some faux generosity was going on, and they paid a high price for lying about that. And so Barnabas is used as an example. And he's a, he's a great example of generosity and encouragement. In fact, when the, when the Christians in Jerusalem were leery of Saul's conversion to Christ, guess who it was that vouched for him? It was Barnabas. I mean, remember, Saul had murdered Christians, murdered them, and now claims that he knows Jesus. You know, you're probably thinking, well, how could Christians be that way in question? Are you going to tell me you wouldn't be a little nervous knowing that you had a murderer coming into your church and now it's claiming he knows Jesus? And yet Barnabas is saying, hey, listen, this guy's the real thing. I've seen, I, I, I've witnessed the transformation. It was, it was Paul who refused to 
take Mark on his second missionary journey, and guess who it was that stood up for Mark? It was Barnabas. He defended him. We read also how he encouraged the Christians at Antioch. And this, this so marked him as a person. He was so adept at encouraging and so adept at his generosity. The church did not call him by his given name. They, they, they gave him a nickname, encourager, son of encourager, Barnabas. They didn't give him a name related to his priestly family, him being a Levite. They didn't give him a name to signify, you know, his vacation home on Cyprus. No, they gave him a nickname that demonstrated the dominant trait that he had of generosity and encouragement. May God make that so in us and in us as a church. Oh, I know that church. That's not the church that looks like an airplane hangar, you know. That's not the church that, you know, has a, you know, building. That's, that's a church. They are so kind and giving. I've heard about them. Wouldn't that be great? They are so generous there. May we allow the life of Christ to so move in our hearts that he will rise far above any possession, any given name, any vocation. And our reputation is one of generosity, encouragement. Unless we think this extravagance and sacrificial generosity is in the abstract, Luke throws a person, a real guy in the middle of that. This is a real-life example of somebody who did this. Yes, it can be done. It was done because Barnabas did not keep himself from a safe distance, but he could see the needs. He, he moved in, leaned in to the pain. Listen, we can't help everyone, but each of us can help someone, right? We can't meet every need, but we can meet some needs. And we can have the kind of reputation that recognizes the generosity. In fact, turn to the person next to you and call them and say, how are you, Mr. or Mrs. Generous? Go ahead, say that right now. Turn to the person next to you. Doesn't that feel good? Hello, all of you generous ones at Christ Community Church. What do you say we live up to that? What do you say we make it so? Let's pray.